we are in a study of the book of Hebrews, and uh, we are, last week, tackled what I believe to be one of the most difficult passages in Scripture. It's Hebrews chapter 6, talking about this question. In fact, if you, if you turn there, it's really the heart of it is in verses 4 to 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. And... Uh, we talked last week, and so, and so here's the thing, what's kind of interesting, so last night I preached my sermon and someone came up because I wanted to talk about this idea of does falling away mean you can lose your salvation? We mentioned that last week, told you we'd talk about it today, that's what we're going to do. But they came up and said, so okay, so if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? And I went, did you not listen to last week's sermon, right? I preached like a whole sermon on it. Oh, no, I wasn't here, okay? So I can preach it to you again, or you can go find it on YouTube. So hopefully uh, you were here. If you weren't, would encourage you to pick it up. Uh, but I don't, I don't, you know, the heart of this is, is that he's writing to people who are believers, right? That's those five things. They, they are believers, and this falling away is this hardness of heart that comes in. But the question is, and some people take this passage to talk about can a Christian lose their salvation? So that's what I want to talk about today. And one of the reasons that we do, uh, you know, we take books of the Bible, we take them passage by passage. Part of what we're trying to do is to also model for you how do you study God's Word, because that's a really important piece. And so really encourage you to obviously take notes, and so usually we're dealing with a passage, and then we'll have like a correlating passage. I'll throw it up on the screen, because A, I know sometimes it's really hard to turn real quick and see it. Uh, others of you are using your phone or your iPad had, and my concern is, is that if you get looking really quick, you'll end up on Facebook, and I don't want you to do that either while I'm preaching. But today, uh, we are going to look at a lot of different passages. These things are so important. I want to make sure that you know where they are in your Bible, and so that you're making notes. Hey, this deals with our salvation. Or if you're on your phone or, or on your iPad. I don't know how you do it. I kind of color code mine. So if you ever looked at mine, my yellow are the things I just really like. Things that are blue or things that uh, actually talk about money in the Bible. Because I find that an interesting topic. Uh, and things that are quoted in the New Testament from the Old Testament. I put into green. And isn't that all really weird? Way more about me than you want to know. But that's just kind of the way my mind works. So I would encourage you, pick a color you don't normally use, because these are passages that you're going to want to come back to. But I, so that's what we're going to talk about today. But we need to deal with another subject first. Uh, I, what I found in, in my 40 some odd years of ministry is that Christians get really nuanced about this idea of can a Christian lose their salvation, right? There's always the what ifs, the what ifs, the what ifs. I think I've heard them all. 
And to deal with every what if, we'd probably be here till next Sunday. And I figure you probably wouldn't want that. So we're, we're not going to try to deal with them all. But what I find is that one of, the, one of the main issues, I think, is that we lose sight of the question of what actually brings salvation. What, what is it that enters somebody into this relationship with Jesus? And the Bible is really clear that what enters us into this relationship is faith in the Lord Jesus. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 20, verse 31. In fact, we'll even start reading with verse 30. Now, what's interesting about John is that John is a book that is specifically written to people who do not believe so that they will believe. It's different than any other book of the Bible. All the other New Testament books are really designed more for Christians. But as we get to John 20, verse 30, we see this. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says, I specifically Pick these things so that you would come to believe and that in believing you would have eternal life. And if you've ever taken a look at the book of John, he's very systematic. He picks seven miracles and seven teachings of Jesus that specifically point to the fact that he is the son of God. He's going to be the way of salvation. And so here's the thing. What is it then that makes somebody a believer, that gives them salvation? It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so often when I hear, well, you, you say that somebody can just pray a prayer, and, and then they're, it's, it's like they get out of jail or get out of hell free card, right? No. Listen, salvation is not gained by praying a prayer. You maybe have heard the expression, the sinner's prayer. Have you ever heard that, right? The sinner's prayer. Listen, you can pray the quote-unquote sinner's prayer every day. And that doesn't give you salvation because salvation isn't about saying certain words. Salvation is about faith in Jesus alone. Do you get where I'm going with this? Salvation is not gained by going, I went, to, I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade. Great. You can go forward in every service in the world. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't have salvation. Salvation comes through faith in Christ. One of the things we do around here is about once a month is we take communion. You can take communion and not be a Christian because communion doesn't bring salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ alone brings salvation. You, next week we're going to have baptism. You can get baptized every week. You can be baptized as an infant. Baptism doesn't bring salvation. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not gained by living a good life. What John tells us here is this. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Folk, there are two aspects. If you want to begin to boil this down. I believe there's two aspects of things you have to believe. Number one, you have to believe 
that Jesus is the son of God. Because it's only in his deity that he has the ability and the capability of being able to save us. I can't die for you and your sins. You know why? Because I'm a human. I've got my own sin. You can't die for me. But Jesus, because he is the perfect son of God... God in human flesh now has both the ability and the capability of dying for you and for me to provide the forgiveness that we need. And so we believe that he is the son of God and secondly, that he is the Messiah. The Messiah means the anointed one. That he was the one chosen by God to bear our sins. He was the one who was chosen to fulfill Isaiah 53. And so when he went to the cross, he paid the debt that you and I cannot pay. In fact, if you just turn back a page or so earlier, you there in John 19. And you read those last words of Jesus as he hung on the cross. It is finished. To tell us died. The debt is paid. That his death on the cross not only paid for the sins of the world, but it paid for my sins. And his point is believing, believing that you have life in his name. And here's the thing about belief belief is not an, an act of the emotion, right? So there might be emotion with it. But really, believing is an act of the will. You know, sometimes people go, well, I think I believe. I think they're like the little train that could, right? They're trying to talk themselves. No, 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 no. You could choose to believe in Jesus. You choose to put your faith and trust in him and what he did for you. It's an act of the will. Sometimes your emotions are here. Sometimes they're there, right? Sometimes it's, it's like I really feel it. Sometimes I don't. But I have chosen by an act of my will to put my trust that when I stand before God, my only plea is Jesus. That's what brings salvation. So ultimately, the big question is not have you prayed a prayer. It is not have you gone forward at a service. It is not have you been baptized. It is have you come to put your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your eternal salvation. That's the issue. John says these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in his name. Ultimately, that's the only question that matters. It's the only question that determines whether someone is saved or not saved. So with that, are we all on the same page now? We, we all, okay. So with that as a background, what I want to encourage you today is that once we come to that point of faith in Jesus, and we have been saved, we have life, that there is security in that, and that is not something that we can lose, right? There are so many different aspects, and this was a hard week for me, because we, again, we could go at this in so many different directions, and I wanted to pull some things that I, I felt like maybe would help you uh, to, to really grasp this thought. So I'm going to give you five things. The first one is this. When you come to believe in Jesus, you enter a covenant relationship of salvation. 
So turn with me to Luke, Luke chapter 22. It's a passage we're always we're familiar with. We read it almost every communion service. So they're in the upper room, verse 19, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, in New Testament, we don't talk a lot about covenants. But they're huge in the Old Testament. And we see them all over the place. A covenant is an agreement. It's a promise. It's a, it's a pact between God and either an individual or a group of individuals. And the interesting thing, there's two types of covenants. There is what is called a unconditional covenant, where God just says, this is what I'm going to do. And then there's a conditional covenant, where if you do this, then I'll do that. If you do this, then I'll do that. And then typically with every covenant, there's a, there is a sign, there's a... Uh, uh, kind of a beginning point and a ritual that, that takes place. So let me see if I can uh, talk you through this. One of the best known covenants, we may see it on Wednesday because it's going to rain. It's called the Noah Covenant. So God had just destroyed the entire world through a flood. Noah, his wife, his three sons, they're their wives get off the boat and God now makes a covenant not just with Noah and his sons but with all of their descendants that he will never again destroy the earth it is an unconditional covenant it's not well if you do this then I won't destroy the earth it's just simply I'm not going to destroy the earth again with a flood and oh by the way here's the sign here's the interaction of it is I'm going to put my bow in the heavens when it rains so you'll know and by the way here we are you know depending on how long ago you think it is five six thousand years ago and God has never destroyed the world again it is an unconditional covenant that he made by the way why did God destroy the world in the first place because the thoughts and intents of everyone's heart was only evil continually do you not think that we've gotten back there yet? But it's unconditional. It's not based on us. God just said, I'm not going to do it. Then you have the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, we see it in Genesis chapter 12. We see it again in Genesis chapter 15, where God takes Abram and says, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a great nation, which by the way, he had no children. I'm going to take you to a place and give you land where you've not even been before. And then through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And Abraham, the Bible says, Genesis 15, 6, one of the biggest, most important verses in the Bible. Abraham believed God and it was counted for him as righteousness. And so God now enters into this covenant it is an unconditional covenant it's not well abram if you do this or abram if you do that then i'll do this it's just simply this is what i'm going to do for you and the sign the the ratification of the covenant was actually a really interesting picture 
when two men would enter into a covenant together, this is what they would do. They would take animals, they would kill them, they would cut them in half, lay them on either side, and then they would lock arms and they would walk through those dead animals together, which, by the way, they're going to cook and eat and have a big party here. But the whole idea of walking between them was, if I don't keep my part of the covenant, may what's happened to these animals happen to me. And so God now makes this covenant, this is what I'm going to do, go kill all this. So there's a, there's a bull, there's a ram, there's a lamb, there's a bird, right? So he kills them all. Now what happens? Genesis 15. God makes Abram to fall asleep. And in the midst of his, his sleep, God shows up by himself as a burning pot and he alone not with Abraham but he alone goes through the ratification it's an unconditional covenant which by the way he enters by faith but he doesn't lose later on when he doesn't have faith say when did Abraham didn't have faith well you remember Hagar which, by the way, have you ever thought about how much Hagar and Sarah and that whole thing reminisces what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden? Where Sarah, kind of like Eve, gets a plan outside of God's will. The husband's quiet and doesn't speak and take that point of leadership. Abram, in his unbelief goes in and sleeps with her. There's Ishmael. We still see the effects of that today. Oh, by the way, a little bit later, um, they're down with Abimelech. And uh, he tells Abimelech, Sarah is my sister. So he takes him as a wife. It's unbelief. Can I remind you that even later when Sarah is 90 years of age and the angels show up, and we all know about Sarah laughing, but do you know the scripture tells us that, that Abraham laughed because he didn't believe it either? But the covenant is unconditional. And it is still in effect today. The other covenant that we're probably most aware of is called the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant. And that's why I think we're so aware of it. Because what God did is he brought Israel out of Egypt, he took them to Mount Sinai and he made this covenant. And the covenant is, if you do this and if you do this, then I'll do that. We see that in, in Exodus 19. Now then, if, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my people, my own possession among, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. It's conditional. If you do this, then I'm going to do that. Now, the question is, did, did the people keep the Mosaic covenant? The answer is no. It was broken. It was a conditional covenant. And oh, by the way, if you will indeed obey my voice. Anybody know what happens in Exodus 20? You get the Ten Commandments. You get the law as it plays out. They, they did not keep the covenant, and the covenant was broken. You then have, and to me this is such a good parallel. That's why I want to mention this one. Another covenant you have in the Old Testament is called the Davidic covenant. It's the covenant with David. 
You see it in 1 Samuel where David, God just says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to set your kingdom and it, it's always going to be there. Your sons will always reign over Israel. In fact, take your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, I think, explains it so well. This unconditional covenant. It wasn't, David, if you do this, and if you do this, and your sons do this, then I'll do that. It's just simply, I am going to, to make your throne last forever. And this Psalm 89 talks about it. Let's start reading in verse 28. He says, my loving kindness, I will keep for him forever. He's talking about David here. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever. His throne is the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod, their iniquity with strife, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterances of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. What God says is this, this this covenant is unconditional. Your throne will always be established in Israel. Which, by the way, so Jesus comes as the Messiah. What was the important piece? That he was of the tribe, the lineage of David, right? That's why Matthew and Luke both start with genealogies to take him back to David. Because God is keeping his covenant, even though David was not faithful to the Lord and David's sons certainly weren't. Did he discipline them like he promised? Yes. But his covenant he would not break. So that brings us back to Jesus says, this blood, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What's he talking about? What's another covenant, another unconditional covenant that's prophesied about? Not established, but it's prophesied about in the Old Testament. Here's a passage you need to know. It You need to have this mark. It's so important. It's Jeremiah 31. We're going to see this Jeremiah 31 a lot when we get further into Hebrews. He says, behold, days are coming, right? So this is future. This hadn't happened yet. Declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. What's he talking about? The Mosaic covenant is going to be different. The Mosaic covenant was conditional. This is going to be unconditional. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Think Holy Spirit coming. If a man is in Christ, he's a new creature. And write them on their heart. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is the new covenant. So as Jesus...
is getting ready to go to the cross, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is going to fulfill that. It is an unconditional covenant. But you say, well, wait a minute, Steve. He's talking here to the house of Israel. We are not of the house of Israel. I am so glad you brought that up. I want you to look at Ephesians because Paul addresses this very thing. Ephesians chapter 2. Another passage you need to have marked. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed on the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Notice this phrase, strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world, verse 13, but. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall. What's the dividing wall? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is what? The law of commandments contained in the ordinance. It's the Mosaic Covenant. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. See, this is what Jesus did. He came and he fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant. He perfected it. And now it is no more. He, he, he accomplished all of the conditions and now he establishes a new covenant by his blood, which is the new covenant talked about in Jeremiah 31. But now it includes not just the Jews, but to all who come to believe in Jesus. And folks, it is an unconditional covenant. And so when you and I come to faith in Jesus, we enter by faith into this covenant that now is unconditioned. It's not conditioned on our continued faith or anything else because we have been washed with the blood of Christ. Here's the second thing. You inherit the promises of Jesus. So turn with me to John chapter 10. Second reason why I don't believe you can lose it. John chapter 10. Here's a, again, verse you need to have underlined in your Bible, verse 28. We'll start with verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus says I give them eternal life. John 6 47 he that believes in me has everlasting life, right? I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Let me ask you, how long is never? Never. Never perish. So if everyone who believes in Jesus has everlasting life and then they lose that and they end up perishing, then you really have made Jesus a liar. They will never perish. 
And then I think he kind of knew that 2,000 years down the line, there were going to be a lot of nuanced Christians who kind of thought, well, okay, well, well, you know, what if we walk away? What if we do this? What if, we, you know, we, we reject? And he says, all right, so they're in the palm of my hand and no one can snatch them out. Hmm, okay. Yeah, but, okay, so nobody can get in and take us, but what if we went out? Maybe we can crawl through those little holes, right? Well, my father is greater than all. They're in his hand, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Oh, yeah, but okay, there's still, still those little breaks. And you know, my first question is, well, aren't you someone, right? You can't snatch yourself away. But then just to put it all to rest, he says, I and my Father are one. There are no holes. There are no way out. Jesus promises, as he gives us eternal life, they will never perish Next thing I want you to see is why I don't believe we can lose our salvation is found in Romans chapter 3. Because it's the judicial aspect of salvation. And so often we forget this. So if you're going to Romans chapter 3, Paul has started an argument in, in Romans 1 about why all men are guilty before God. In fact, it, 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 he brings it to a head here in Romans 3. There are none righteous, no, not one. For all his sin to fall short of the glory of God. And now he starts talking about what Jesus then does for us. Look at this in verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, which God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So at that moment of faith, at that moment that we believe in Jesus and we receive eternal life, the Bible says that we are justified. Now that's a theological term that many of us misunderstand, how it's often explained to children, well, just as if I had not saved, which is partially true. Justification does deal with, and go, think back to the new covenant, their sin, their iniquity, I will remember no more. But justification is more than that. It is a legal pronouncement that we are righteous. And it's not just because our sin has been forgiven, but it's because in the, in the analog of God, now Jesus' righteousness has been put on my account. So it's not just that I don't have sin and I've been brought back to neutral, but I actually stand in the righteousness of Jesus today. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul talks about in Philippians 3, that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, of law, but the righteousness of Christ. Justification means that when you came to believe, not only was all your sin forgiven, but now Christ's righteous, how, how, it's a legal pronouncement. It's a judicial act. How does God undo that? He doesn't. And then he uses two more words here. He uses the word through, through the redemption. Redemption means to buy back. It's the idea of, of buying a slave out of the slave market. You, become, you belong to God. God doesn't sell us back. 
And then he uses the word propitiation, right there in verse 25. For God displayed publicly as a propitiation. You know what propitiation means? It means that God is satisfied. Now think about that. When Jesus died on the cross to become a propitiation, all the sin that you and I would commit is future, right? So when you and I come to faith in Christ and we now become a part of the covenant of salvation, God has been satisfied not just with the sin that we had committed up to that point, not just with the sin that we were presently committed, but it was sin, all of our sin. God is satisfied. He was propitiated. We become his child. You, you can't undo those things. And oh, by the way, remember, he talks about the fact that we're justified, right? Well, later on, because of all this, you, you talk security. We've been redeemed, we've been propitiated, we've been justified. That's why he comes back in that incredible passage in Romans 8, and he says this, and these whom he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he what? Glorified, right? It's not most of the people that he justified, he glorified, but it's all. Number four, you have eternal life. Eternal life at its very basic nature is, first of all, relationship with God, John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you and your only begotten son. And secondly, that we would know him forever. That's the beauty of it, right? That's why when we talk about eternal life, we often talk about heaven because it's not just simply that we're going to live forever. Everybody's going to live forever. You have an eternal soul. It's that we're going to live forever with him. That's eternal life. And the thing is, if I receive eternal life, a relationship with God, that is both relationship with him and relationship with him forever, but then I lose that aspect of being with him forever, right? I'm going to perish, which Jesus already said you can't. The reality is what I had was not eternal life. Eternal life, by its very definition, is both knowing him, but knowing him forever. Lastly, there's no clear passages there's no clear passages in Scripture that teach you can lose your salvation. There's difficult passages. I mean, there's Hebrews 6. It's a hard passage. Some suggest that's what it's saying. Uh, but when I talk about clear passage, I think John 3, 16. Right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Romans chapter 8, those that he justified, he also glorified. Those are clear. Now, the one, in fact, somebody came up to me uh, after one, I don't know, they, they all run together with me, but after one of these services and said, well, what about, because it's the one I hear about, what about the unpardonable sin?" Right? Because that will not be forgiven in this life and the life together. What happens if a Christian does that? Can they lose their salvation? And you kind of go, well, 
Do you understand what the unpardonable sin is? Jesus is doing all these miracles that are, are the perfect fulfillment of what Messiah would do in Isaiah. He's making the lame to walk. He's making the blind to see. He is revealing himself to be the Messiah. And what they decide to do is to say, well, he's a Beelzebul. So they're attributing the works of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, Jesus wasn't working in his own power. He was working in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is bringing these things to convict them that Jesus is the Messiah. They're taking the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, the signs that he's giving them, and they're, they're attributing it to Satan, which is causing them to further reject Christ. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, can only happen with an unbeliever who takes the work of of the Holy Spirit in their life that's bringing them point to Jesus and rejecting that. And if you reject and you say that, no, that's of Satan, what is there that can actually bring you to faith? There's nothing. It's the work of the Spirit. You just rejected it by saying it's Satan. That's, that is that. A Christian can't do that because they come to faith in Christ. All right, I got to be done like one minute ago and I have four little points here real quickly. So let me, let me just hurry. Let me just share some of the benefits of why I think this is so important. Number one, do you remember what we talked about in, in Hebrews? His whole point is you have to go on to maturity, right? You, you need to leave these elementary truths behind. Not, not that you don't believe them. It's the fact that you do believe them. You stand on them. They, they're, they're your foundation because it's only there where you can go on to maturity. When you meet Christians who struggle with their own salvation, there's, there's just never maturity there because they're still struggling with this. Does he love me today? Does he? Did I do enough good things, right? There's all these pieces, and it's only in the security that we have Christ that allows us to go on to maturity, to understand these more important, these deeper things, these, these pieces that are so important. Secondly, I think it's only our security in Christ that allows us to live fully the greatest commandment why God, which God wants us to do. Remember the greatest commandment? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, what's the best way that we love? Do, do we love best when we're trying to get something out of somebody? That's often called manipulation. We best love someone when we are secure in their love for us. And now we just do what we do out of a heart of gratitude. And when we think of our security in Christ, what it allows us to do is to go and just focus on him and loving him. One of the biggest aspects that people push back on security, well, then I can get saved and just live. Okay. It's not just praying a prayer. It's not just going, it's not just jumping through a hoop. It's believing in Jesus. I think, quite honestly, if you kind of go into this of, okay, I'm just going to get my fire insurance from hell and I'm going to go live. Do, Do you really believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Because my sense is if you really understand that he is the ultimate judge of the universe, you don't go in with that attitude. And what I would argue with you 
is that when you understand security, it doesn't allow you to go live in sin. It actually brings you more into a spirit of repentance because you know that you have a, you know, so often, what happens when we sin? What did Adam and Eve do when they sin? They went and hid. Isn't that what we do? Because we don't want God to know like he doesn't know. We don't want to have to face it. But when you know that there's a... And part of it for Adam and Eve, how is God going to respond? But when you know you have a God that loves you, he is your heavenly father. Maybe you're acting like the prodigal son, but you know that he is standing there waiting for you. It causes us not to continue in sin, but to take the conviction of the Holy Spirit and to move back to him. Because we know that we are loved and we know we're a part of him. And then lastly, I think security really helps us to focus on Jesus. Now, this may come like a shock. This may become a, you know, off to you like a, a, just this flash of illumination because you maybe have never thought about it. But here in North America, we're kind of obsessed with thinking about ourselves, right? Instagram. Facebook. <laughs> One of my funniest, I, I, I love seeing this. You're on Facebook and here's a new post. You know, it's like five minutes and there's pictures. But in one of the pictures, somebody's got their eyes closed and looks really bad. And it's kind of funny, right? And I'll go get Tammy and I'll, hey, you got to see this picture. So we'll come back in an hour. Guess what? The picture is not there anymore. You know why? I know why because I've gotten those calls. Right? Take that picture down. I look terrible in that picture, right? We're all focused on us and what are people going to think and all of this. And when we always have got to have this question, am I really saved? Am I really going to, you know, a child of God? What am I doing? I'm always measuring myself against people. I'm always measuring myself against what I think God wants. The focus becomes me. And the freedom that there is in Christ to know that we stand secure is that we can just focus on Jesus. We can just love him. And in those moments when we know because we see him that we have fallen short, we're able to then touch of his, his grace and his forgiveness. But man, as long as we're focused on us, the enemy, I think, has got us right where he wants us to be. We can't move on to maturity. Maturity. 